So this week, uh, because it's the holidays and I'm recording this during the holidays, um, I don't know when this episode is actually going to air. It may air um, just after Christmas or it may air just after New Year's. We'll see. Uh, I haven't 100% decided that yet. But since I'm recording during the holidays, um, I, I just want to take a minute and kind of wrap up what I think is the top story of the year um, in my limited aperture, which is Afghanistan. And um, update you guys on that. Obviously, we have a couple of really fun episodes that you guys have been listening to um, about you know movies that Charlie and I like and all that, because we're trying to keep it light during the holidays. But it felt right to be a little bit sober as well uh, this time of year, because um, you know there is stuff that's really important to the veteran community going on right now. And that felt like the uh, best place to focus our attention would be on Afghanistan. Um, so I uh, talked with a guest that was witty, wise, erudite, and stunningly good looking. That's right. I talked with myself uh, for uh, about an hour. Didn't mean to. I only meant to talk for about 20 minutes and just do a quick wrap up. But um, I don't know. I got to muttering and it just ended up extending into an hour but i think i think you guys are going to find um, a lot of interesting stuff out of there um I, I try to give an update on what's going on in afghanistan for those that aren't aware of what the latest and, and greatest is over there um or i should say the latest because there's not a lot of greatest going on over there right now but be that as it may um so i wanted to make sure we covered that and i also just want to thank everybody for what has been a great 2021 for the show um, really appreciate everyone's support. I'm, I'm gratified that our audience has grown as much as it has. And, um, you know, it's meant a lot and I've enjoyed it and I hope you guys have enjoyed it as well. And I'm thrilled that you're, you stuck with us through 2021 and I promise 2022 will be better. Um, certainly at the weekly havoc, if not in the world. So without further ado, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the weekly havoc. Welcome to this episode of the Weekly Havoc, where we engage in roundtable discussion normally with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal and try to make a little order out of chaos. This week, we are not doing that because it's just me and it's the holidays and hopefully you guys are enjoying some of the fun episodes that Charlie and I recorded just on movies and kind of some lighthearted stuff for the holidays uh, and we wanted to do that. Um, but I also wanted to throw a little bit of sobriety into the mix this holiday season. And if I sound a little out of it, um, I've been catching up on a lot of communication, um, that I have still with, um, some friends that are in Afghanistan and, uh, I, I just don't think we can end this podcast this year without touching base on what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, I think it's safe to say it's, it's to my mind, the most important story of the year by far. Um, maybe that's not even in my mind. Maybe that you guys feel the same way. Maybe even the country feels the same way. I don't know. Um, I mean, COVID is a pretty big deal, but, um, but I think 
what's going on in Afghanistan has, um, as I've talked about before, when I've talked about Afghanistan, uh, there's multiple knock-on effects of this withdrawal. And I want to just touch briefly on each of them, but I want to start um, just by reading a short selection of a text message I received. And this is from um, an Afghan commando. (sighs) What is the reason for all this silence and why? Are we to blame or the politicians who played the wrong policy? The special forces of the commandos do not deserve all these problems of being humiliated. It is enough that there is no endurance to continue living. I wish we did not eat the label of America so they would at least leave us alone so that I could find a piece of bread for our family. Let me just pause right here. Obviously, there's sometimes some hiccups with pronouns and exactly who uh, this guy is talking about. But in this case, uh, he means the Taliban that's hunting them down right now. Okay, he continues, the U.S. government and the Department of Defense have a direct responsibility to reach out to special forces. During 20 years of training and fighting side by side, abandoning the beautiful hedge of a superpower is not considered cowardice and incompetence. We did not lose the war. Your choice of advisors in the field, politicians, was wrong, and they played the wrong policy, plunging everyone to the brink of death and gradual death. The forces that fought with you Americans and defended each other were not as valuable as footballers, singers, cyclists, and homosexuals. I'm very sorry. Wow, we had a hard time. We have no hope other than trusting in a pure and needless God. So there is an unvarnished, politically incorrect statement from one of our allies on the ground. Um, I want to address a couple of things that he brings up and talk a little bit then about uh, some of the issues that are still um, stopping progress and stopping our ability to um, get some of these allies out. Um, I understand his frustration. Um, It's a frustration that I felt a lot. Um, especially in the last couple of months. And I think a large part of that frustration is based on who actually was evacuated from Afghanistan and who has not been. And the fact that those that provided the most support to America have been the hardest to get out of the country. Um, Obviously, American citizens were going to take priority. Approved SIV holders um, would obviously be the next highest up and and justifiably so but everyone knows the siv process was broken and there was a huge backlog and people that you know righteously applied and should have been granted sivs um years ago had not so they were as you know good as never having applied um once we pulled out but then for these um the anasak commandos the afghan commandos um a lot of them never applied for SIVs, never put in for it. They weren't planning on leaving. 
they were literally what we wanted them to be. They were the ones fighting for Afghanistan, the ones who refused to leave, the ones who refused to back down, the ones who followed not just our policy decisions unquestioningly, but also our ethics, our morals, our American ideals. And I think that's um, on an emotional level what's so difficult to see with so many of them now is um, they dared to put their trust in us and have had the rug pulled out from under them in the harshest possible way. And as much as many people that worked with them have been slaving away nonstop in every spare minute since at least August 31st, in some cases before then, um, there's only so much that volunteers can do. And we have seen, I've talked about this a couple of months ago, you know, we've seen uh, these infrastructures grow and, um, out of military uh, volunteers, ex-military volunteers, or, or sometimes active duty folks that are donating their spare time and everyone trying to pitch in and help uh, whoever we can in Afghanistan that helped us. But, you know, you're talking about building an infrastructure that can stand shoulder to shoulder, peer to peer, and um, and have uh, all the capabilities of a nation state. And that's, uh, you know, that that's a huge lift. And that's not going to be done in a couple of months. And short of starting our own nation state, <laughs> and there's a term for that, uh, you know, that's never going to happen. Um, a group of volunteers can't force. Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and uh, the Emirates to just take in uh, the Afghans that we want them to take. Um, the UN won't listen to a group of you know military volunteers, ex-military volunteers, whatever, um, and declare uh, you know Afghans uh, a refugee population, which would immediately allow um, a lot of humanitarian parole documents to be approved and a lot of people that are currently in Afghanistan to be approved for relocation to uh, the United States, assuming they could get out of the country. Right now, just to clarify, a lot of those people are in a catch-22. Um, you know, Many of them don't have passports, but for them to get humanitarian parole into the United States, which is you know a refugee document, um, saying that they've been persecuted and certainly like our Anasoc allies are. Um, the, the problem is, is that document can't be granted while they're still in uh, a nation state. And since the international community hasn't passed judgment yet on whether Afghanistan is a functioning nation state, it can't be declared a refugee um, situation. So as a result, um, it's essentially like saying, hey, we can't grant some guy in France uh, refugee status until he leaves France, you know, um, and you, so essentially they're considered citizens of Afghanistan. And as long as they remain in Afghanistan, they cannot, uh, we, we, no one can process humanitarian parole documents for them, which means that then there is a high premium on trying to get out of Afghanistan, which is why Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, um, all the neighboring countries have locked down their borders. Um, in some cases, Russian troops have even come in to assist and to ensure 
that uh, no one spills across the borders. Um, you know, helping out their former satellite countries in the north. So it's a, it's a catch twenty two situation, and for our allies, um, and, and when I say our allies, what I, I mean that literally, the people that literally were fighting shoulder to shoulder with us. Uh, there's a, an incredible sense of disappointment, which I understand because, as much as in the United States, we look at you know the I think the average civilian, your average, um, yeah, your your average civilian, your average. Uh, uh, you know, person that cares, uh, generally speaking, is going to uh, treat all Afghans as an apples to apples comparison. You know, if you get the Afghan women's soccer team out, well, that's fine. You got them out. Uh, you, you know, they're they're no better, no worse than any other Afghans you could have got out. If you get out a you know well regarded painter out of Afghanistan, um, awesome. You know, if you get a uh, women rights, uh, women's rights activist out, if you get um, gay rights activists out, it's all same, same to most civilians. But what um, my commando friend was saying is that certain Afghans have bled significantly for the United States specifically. And the fact that they are not front-loaded for treatment, and in fact, far from being not front-loaded, are not even loaded. It's not even they're back-loaded. They're 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 not loaded at all. Um, there is they are the most difficult and um, uh, most uh, what's the word I could say um, most impossible group to move because that's the last people that the Taliban is going to let out of that country. And so for them to sit and watch everyone else that people in the West are applauding getting out and for them to see the West gradually losing interest in the situation and in some cases resting on its laurels, like the administration, to say that it got out a hundred some odd thousand Afghans without regard to who they were, how they helped the United States or NATO, um, what their role was in the war on terror. Um, but just, you know, luck of the draw, catch as catch can, the people that happen to get on the planes, um, which is not all of them. I mean, there are some incredibly valuable people that that got out of the country. And, um, you know, your heart goes out to anybody trying to flee that situation. God knows I would do the same if I were in their shoes. But for the United States, we have an obligation, certainly a moral obligation to look after those who actually really did go to war with us. And this is where there's been a, a little bit of a situation um, that I've noticed in the military community or the veteran community. Um, not that those two are interchangeable, but for ease of nomenclature, I'll just conflate them. Um, and I've noticed this in a lot of different conversations I've had with people. And I was talking about it with a, um, a, a guy I, I met in the course of um, the last few months. And um, he was uh, uh, not telling tales out of school. He was an NSW guy, and he um, and we were kind of commiserating over some of the responses we had found in the veteran community about the Afghan situation, where there was a sense of, well, the Afghans are all savages, um, or you know, eh, 
you know, I can't shed too many tears over them. And besides the, um, the practical uh, problems that that poses and the way that that attitude will bite us in the ass in very real geopolitical terms, which I'll get to shortly, uh, for those that can't connect the dots, um, there was also, it also was a comment that rankled a lot of us that were um, working um, to try to help our, our, our friends, our brothers over there. And a lot of that, uh, and, and what my, my friend, the NSW guy said, is he, he said, look, um, he's like, what I've noticed is he's like, you can almost um, pinpoint their attitude based on when they were in Afghanistan, which I thought was a really interesting comment. And I've, I've kind of thought about it since I'm just going to put it out there. But he said, you know, if you, um, if you were in Afghanistan before 2013, uh, you, your impression of the Afghan people is not good. And your impression of our allies in Afghanistan is not good. Um, whether they're ANASOC, whether they're regular ANA, uh, ANP, um, local folks, ALP, whatever, um, your impression of them was not good. But if you're in Afghanistan after 2013, uh, he said, it seems like those are the people that really bonded with the Afghans. And, and, for justifiable reasons, it's not that you know people that served in Afghanistan after 2013 were inherently better than the Americans and NATO folks that served before then. A lot of it was also the Afghan military had gotten a lot better. Uh, the Afghan people were a lot more uh, socialized to Western customs and American values, and there was a lot more um, socialization uh, of the Afghan people. So, you know, our TTPs as Americans and as NATO folks certainly improved and our ability to win hearts and minds and coin and all that stuff. Sure. That was all um, getting better. And I'm sure that played a role, but also, you know, Afghan society was improving and uh, you know, the Afghans were realizing we were going to be there even despite our rhetoric, you know, it wasn't changing the fact they were still seeing Humvees drive down the street and MRAPs and what have you. And, uh, and knowing that Americans were there and that changed the temperature in Afghanistan that changed literally the cultural climate in Afghanistan and um, Afghans, especially in the, in the bigger cities, um, but even in some of the outlying areas, uh, you know, were, were, um, were different. So the experience of Afghanistan veterans that came after 2013, my, my buddy's hypothesis uh, was, was, uh, was very different than those that came before. And as a result, it seemed like, and I, this is not even anecdotal because I really haven't canvassed any sort of uh, data on this, but you know, my sense is that a lot of the people involved um, you know, now in the effort to uh, bring people out are generally folks that, that did serve in Afghanistan after 2013. Um, in some cases, um, many of us that were there just in the last few years, um, because you literally you know, left the country and then turned around and saw your, the people you were literally just working with being betrayed. So, and left behind and hunted and, you know, getting messages from them and, and, you know, um, you know, some bad videos, bad voicemails, bad, you know, bad juju. So, uh, so that I think is an interesting split in the veteran community. And I don't want to make too much of it. I don't know how much of a split it is or not. I just note that there were a lot of comments that I heard. And apparently there were comments that some other folks had heard 
that had rubbed them the wrong way. And uh, when we commiserated, that was kind of the working hypothesis that we came up with. So I think it's interesting um, and, uh, you know, an interesting dynamic just to note. So let's talk about, um, besides, you know, anecdotal stuff and, you know, my personal take and, and people's individual uh, recollections and, and remembrances and, and sympathies about Afghanistan. Let's talk more about the geopolitical realities of what this is going to mean. And because we're coming up on the new year, and I, I don't know exactly when I'm going to drop this episode, so it might be just after the new year, it might be just before the new year, but regardless, it's going to be around New Year's. So I'll even do a little low-level prognostication here. So what really are we seeing in Afghanistan now? What's the dynamic? Um, obviously, the flow of information from Afghanistan is winnowed significantly because uh, we're not there anymore, right? So we've created a black hole. Um, one of the few people, if you haven't already read her stuff, Holly McKay, who's a uh, writer and a journalist um, who works at Coffee or Die, um, you know, did a three-month tour through Afghanistan uh, the past three months. She just got back, and I know she's been doing some media tours, um, and justifiably so. I mean, she really was a typical Aussie, you know, a real adventurer and, and out there um, driving around and, and all that. And she's an incredibly unthreatening person and, uh, you know, seemed to have a fairly uneventful ride through all parts of Afghanistan. Uh, so she's not a bad source of information. Uh, as I always say, though, when we talk about journalists, you know, um, journalists don't have a dog in the fight. So, you know, it's a voyeurism and, and that's not bad. Uh, there's, there's a lot of merit to it. Um, it's obviously a different dynamic if you're actually working towards an objective um, and, and trying to, uh, not that journalists aren't working towards an objective. Let me not be lazy with my language. What I mean is um, for folks in the military, in the intelligence community, in uh, the NGO world, uh, you know, they're working to affect an outcome. Um, you know, they're not there simply to take in the story and um, regurgitate it. Um, or even, you know, uh, not that journalists don't have an agenda and all that, but simply, um, you know, ju journalism obviously has its merits. It obviously is worthwhile. Um, but I also think, uh, and I'm saying this because I was deeply involved with people in Afghanistan while she was on the ground, there there's often seemed to be a, a sharp divide between some of the I don't want to say rosier assessments, but some of some of the kind of um, humanitarian or human interest looks at, at Afghanistan and uh, some of the problems that that um, people were running into in my sphere of, of in my span of control. So um, I hope that made sense. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying not to soapbox too much, but um, I just want to make the point that you know there. Afghanistan's a big country. There's a lot of multifaceted experiences, um, and uh, and I'm incredibly impressed. And and I'm not going to lie, I'm slightly jealous of Holly McKay. I think you know that was incredible. And and I think not a lot of uh, red-blooded American males with um, their former military can necessarily do three months in Afghanistan driving around right now. Um, so uh, I'm gl glad she did. Uh, live vicariously through her stuff and. Uh, anyway, not trying to do a backhanded compliment. Okay, so what are some of the geopolitical takeaways from what's happening right now? Well, 
um, the nerf, the resistance that is in Panjshir, being led by Amarula Saleh, um, the former vice president, among others, um, are continuing to fight. They are, um, you know, still engaged. There's a lot of media blackout around them, so it's difficult to gauge what exactly is happening. Um, for a while there, they were really getting pounded, really taking some losses and being pushed back. It's hard to know if they've been pushed into irrelevance or if there is still, um, if they still can make a long-term difference. But in the short term, you know, they are doing things. Um, and I, I, again, this is, I'm, I'm going to say everything I'm going to say, I'm going to say with low to moderate confidence, because I don't think you can speak with high confidence about reporting on the ground in Afghanistan much anymore. Um, so, so bear that in mind as I kind of give some of these assessments, but uh, I, I think third country support of the nerf of the resistance has been difficult. Uh, there have certainly been rising, not just tensions, but kinetic action between ISIS-K and the Taliban. And that in a perverse way has been a bit of a benefit for the nerf fighters in the Panjshir, because I think it has given them a little bit of breathing room. Obviously in the long term, it's not going to make a huge difference whether ISIS or the Taliban are their enemy one way or another, they could get overrun. But in the short term, that that may have played to their advantage. Um, the bigger picture, aside from the resistance fighters, though, is the ubiquity of Pakistani entities. And obviously, the ISI is running wild throughout Afghanistan right now. Um, I won't bore everybody. You've heard my, my um, previous episodes on Afghanistan. You, if you've heard those, you're, you're acutely aware of the ISI's relationship with the Taliban and that kind of uh, recalcitrant draw, recalcitrant, recalcitrant dog owner uh, dynamic that uh, ISI has with the Taliban. Um, that's a harder thing to say. I, I read I read that phrase so much, I would have thought it would have been a lot easier to actually say out loud, and it really wasn't. Um, but uh, Pakistan now that it has kind of carte blanche to do as it sees fit. Um, in Afghanistan is um, seems to be making the most of that opportunity. And that would be a good point to bring up that Pakistan not so long ago became part of China's One Belt, One Road initiative. So Pakistan has open access to Chinese technology or the Chinese technology that the Chinese want the Pakistanis to have. And um, as many of you probably know at this point, but if you don't, I'll break the news. Um, the Chinese uh, now own and control Bagram, Bagram Airfield, um, which I don't know. It just is, is mind-blowing to me um, how recently I was there, and now the Chinese um, control it. And from what I hear, the Pakistanis and the Chinese are doing everything in their power to find out everything that the Americans, the Brits, NATO um, had at their disposal, how we leverage technology in Afghanistan, you know, all the TTPs that we had, um, and uh, not to mention the personnel that were helping us, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so when we talk about Pakistan's influence growing exponentially in Afghanistan, 
we should caveat that also means China's influence is growing exponentially in Afghanistan. And I want to just sidebar for a second. You know, in the last couple of years, the army has, you know, made a very public, uh, not just the army department of defense has made a very public pivot to, um, uh, uh, you know, near peer, uh, peer on peer conflict, uh, as opposed to counterterrorism or counterinsurgency and, and the war on terror and all that. And uh, has certainly put you know the Russias, the Chinas of the world in our in our front sights. And it always occurred to me when I'd hear this talk, this kind of doctrinal talk, that we really need to be ready for the great power competition, and uh, and our our peer near peer adversaries. I, I kept thinking, you know. We have, uh, I mean, yes, it's asymmetric warfare, but we still have a significant fight on our hands in Afghanistan. And it is perversely ironic to me uh, and tragic and sad and darkly comedic that our great power competition may actually be in Afghanistan now because all of our geopolitical enemies are swarming the battlefield, picking over the dead bodies, hunting down our allies. And uh, combing the field for every bit of uh, intelligence they can get about how we did things when we were there. And when you look at the Chinese and what they are going after with rare earths and going after the minerals and, um, you know, Afghanistan has sat on minerals for years. And uh, I I can't remember if I've talked about on this podcast, so I'll mention it now. Um, If you're ever interested. I'll, I'll try to link to it in the show notes. There's there's a lot of articles about the Chinese mines in Logar that they purchased, if memory serves, in 2007. I think they bought they bought a lease or uh, from the Afghan government, and uh, I forget what it was. It might have been I want to say like 41 million or something. It was it was a decent amount of money, but not you know not immense for the Chinese government, but but you know sizable certainly for Afghanistan. And uh, the Chinese bought the mining rights, um, or at least the mining rights, I can't remember, anyway, uh, to the Muhammad Aga mines in Logar province. And the Chinese uh, got that in 2007, and they, I think as recently as 2019 or 2020, they had managed to dig into those mines, and those mines were are laden with silver and copper, and then more and more rare earths and, and minerals and stuff. Um, but I, if I remember right, there were like seven layers of different kinds of minerals. Um, I said, if I can find the article, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Well, by 2019 or 2020, the Chinese extracted about $7 million worth of minerals since 2007. So less than a million dollars a year since they had gotten those leasing rights, they'd managed to extract from Muhammad Aga mines. Well, why? Well, because there was a war going on and Afghanistan had very little infrastructure, especially in that area of Logar. And the Chinese, you know, had to worry about the Taliban coming by and they, you know, had their own police force. You know, they had an Afghan local police that were protecting the place and they had Chinese police that were kind of an inner circle. Um, you know, it, it was, it was a, a very difficult spot for them to uh, exploit. So despite this investment, you know, they were, they were not happy with how this was playing out. And I believe they abandoned the mine um, eventually when COVID hit. But the point being, 
you know, they were constantly in renegotiations with the Afghan government to try to renegotiate the terms because they were so dissatisfied with their ability to exploit uh, uh, that spot and and get the minerals out. Well, um, now, you know, the Chinese are very uh, apolitical. Uh, you know, they they don't they try not to have dogs in fights. They just look for the winner and back the winner and know that they will outlast the winners and the losers. So it's not really going to matter. Um, all they need is just to secure whatever valuable turf they need. And now they're going ahead and, you know, uh, I don't know if they're back in Muhammad Aga, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, they certainly are popping up all the rest all, all around the country, uh, regardless. Um, and very strategically, you know, they're, they're picking the spots they need to be at and um, making peace with whoever they have to make peace with. And they have the money and the means and the opportunity to freely conduct the business that they need to conduct. And then, of course, when you look at the Uyghur situation in Western China, which you know borders Badakhshan and the far eastern provinces of um, or far eastern province, that one specific province of Afghanistan, um, and you know, and the Chinese are actively, uh, you know, they they don't respect that border in Badakhshan, so. They, uh, you know, there's plenty of news of them showing up, of even Chinese infantry showing up uh, deep inside Badakhshan. So the Chinese, uh, the Pakistanis, everybody else are just vultures swooping in, and they have a really fat carcass of a country to pick over. There's plenty of opportunity for them to be unearthing a lot of things that we, because we were A, engaged in full-scale combat operations, and B, because we do operate ethically and as morally as we can, um, we did not you know, exploit and take advantage of. And uh, governments that don't have those consciences or such a conscience will are, are not hemmed up by that and are free to just act amorally um, without any regard for what right or wrong is and just look at their own self-interest. So that's the the perversity of us constantly you know thinking about the south china sea or the pacific rim or where are these great power competitions going to be maybe ukraine and certainly there's a lot of stuff bubbling up over there but it is perversely ironic that we may very well end up going uh, the great power competitions actually going to end up being back in afghanistan because that is uh that is fertile terrain uh for uh us and the chinese to find ourselves across purposes why? What's our compelling interest still in Afghanistan? Well, that's the second point of the geopolitical ramifications of the pullout, which is, as I've said multiple times on the show, it's been a few months since I've talked about it. But for those that remember, um, you know, I, I firmly believe that we will have terror attacks in Western Europe and, and the United States uh, because of the pullout. I, I think it's only a matter of time, um, and it's just a very simple calculation. It's not. I'm not an inherently negative person. I'm not a doomsdayer. I'm not somebody that's constantly uh, walking around wringing my hands and waiting for other shoes to drop in life. But uh, you, you can't walk away in the middle of a fight and expect the fight to be over. That's not how fights work. Um, if you walk away in the middle of a fight, you're going to get punched in the back of the head um, until you either surrender or turn around and reengage. Um, and you know that's a question for a different day. You know what? What will we do? God only knows. But because of that, I, I fail to see how we will not have an interest again in the very near future in Afghanistan. 
Um, I think the only thing holding it up would be the ego of the administration if they just didn't want to um, do an about face or or may, or be seen as doing an about face. So if there's some way for the administration to save face um, and and yet address our, our national interest in Afghanistan, I, I think they would. Um, maybe not right now, but certainly, it, it, you know, if we start seeing more Pulse nightclub shootings or San Bernardino attacks, you know, the lone wolf terrorist attacks inspired by whether it's ISIS or Al Qaeda or whoever, Haqqani, whatever, whatever ideology, whatever group wants to be behind it, whatever tenant the, the Taliban wants to let reside in Afghanistan and start causing trouble. Um, I, I don't see how we don't end up with uh, some serious repercussions in this country. And, and relatively quickly, I, you know, we're, you know, we are literally a goalie with no defense and no other players on the team. We, we have pulled back from all of our forward positions. So at this point, um, <laughs> every shot on goal that we block is, is great, but you know, we, we, we got to block all of them. Um, Cause you know, we don't have anybody else out there helping us defend the goal. And we've had, you know, all the other players on the ice this whole time. And that's, you know, as George Bush used to say, fight them over there. So we're not fighting them over here. Um, well, we've now chosen to abandon that, you know, and yes, we do sell people in Iraq and, and Syria and all that um, in, in diminished quantities, but regardless, we do have them there, but whether or not that actually affects our posture vis-a-vis Afghanistan remains to be seen and probably would not uh, because the groups that are over there would be different and would have uh, different capabilities than the ones in Syria and Iraq. So uh, not a super rosy picture, and I don't want to bum everybody out on the eve on the eve or shortly after the eve of a new year. Um, but I, I say all this to say that whether or not you care about the Afghan people, whether or not you care about Afghanistan, whether or not you like Afghan leadership or the Afghan military, whatever your experience was in Afghanistan, um, if you like America, you're going to have to care about Afghanistan because uh, the bad guys that are in Afghanistan that were there on September 10th, 2001, have only grown since then. You know, if you're going to attack a hornet's nest, you, you got to kill all the hornets. If you don't kill all the hornets, all you've done is piss off the hornets. And even if we've been there for 20 years, it just means we pissed off that many more hornets. So unless you kill them all, unless you solve the hornet problem, you're still going to have that to deal with. So uh, I don't see how that doesn't remain an issue. I don't see how that doesn't follow us home in some way, shape, or form. And, um, you know, speaking personally, I, I pray for our, our Anasak allies that are over there and trying to stay safe. And, um, uh, you know, it would be great if the, the, the Hollywood movie version of this is they all go to Panjshir and join the Nerf and, you know, great things happen from there. But that's not, you know, necessarily realistic or feasible. And, uh, you know, there's always the danger. There's, there's been rumors for a while of the possibility that other groups that might oppose the Taliban, even if they're also nefarious, might attract the interest of well-trained, desperate, um, abandoned former American allies in the Afghan special forces. And that would be um, 
not just bad, you know, uh, tactically, not just bad for uh, the geopolitical import, but also um, morally. Um, that's a real stain that we have or would now have turned close friends into enemies by our negligence, and that 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 leaves a mark. And and you know, in the wrong hands, in the in the wrong mindset. Um, can make an incredibly motivated enemy, and um, and I get it. Uh, that you know, I hope that never happens. And you know, uh, but people are people, and God only knows um, which way this ball bounces. Um, Afghanistan's a hard country to predict. Um, the only thing you can really say is that it's definitely not a country that can survive without adult supervision, especially in the near term. Um, so the sooner we have some ability to control outcomes there or mitigate ill effects over there, uh, the better in my view. And, um, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope, I hope things don't come back and chase us here, but we'll see. So what am I driving towards with all this? Uh, sorry if I'm rambling a little bit, uh, I'm not going to lie. Some of those, I, I literally just scrolled through, I think those 408 messages, including videos and stuff. And I, I, that kind of, uh, you know, that'll make you mutter to yourself a little bit. So instead of muttering to myself, I'm muttering to you guys. So thank you for bearing with me if this seems like a bit of a ramble. I hope it isn't. I hope it's sort of interesting. I have a feeling like I'm either saying things that everybody's going to know or everybody's going to be completely clueless on. I feel like our audience will either be super knowledgeable or will just be tuning in to this for the first time. So I, you know, I, I hope I'm not turning off one or other of you, of those demographics and i hope everybody's getting something out of this but um anyway i appreciate you bearing with me but i do want to actually bring this to a uh, an actionable point um it is the holiday season uh, at least i'm recording this during the holiday season uh you you are hearing it maybe during the holiday season or possibly just after the new year um but regardless the need to help our allies is not going away and uh, I just want to give uh, all these links will be in the show notes, but I just want to give a shout out to the some of the organizations that are doing great work over there. Um, Save Our Allies obviously has been very, very public and uh, has a huge social media presence and justifiably so. Um, Operation Recovery is a nonprofit that is doing great work. Obviously, Pineapple Task Force Pineapple is doing great work. And if you guys remember, I talked about this before, the PARS Equality Center, P-A-R-S Equality Center, three words, PARS Equality Center, is doing the huge, excruciating lift of processing paperwork for people that we are trying to get out of Afghanistan. Um, And uh, whether it's through a P-1 visa, P-2 visa, humanitarian parole, SIV, whatever, um, they have lawyers that are working for free, pro bono, to try to get people out of Afghanistan. So those are all great places to look at. Um, I, I can't remember. Somebody told me the other day that some of them may not have nonprofit status. Um, some do, some don't. But I, I know I, I can vouch 100% they are all trustworthy. Your dollars are not wasted um, in any of those places. Those are places that are actually um putting their money where their mouth is and um, your dollars do make a real difference there. And uh, I know operation recovery is a 501 C three. 
So that's a tax write-off. So by all means, feel free to dump some money uh, to them because that money will make a big difference. And winter's coming there. So, you know, the need for money, supplies, all that stuff uh, grows. So that's all the Afghanistan stuff. I think I've rambled on enough about that. Again, I, I, I feel like I should apologize for the ramble, but hopefully I don't need to. But I felt like that was a conversation with myself, which it was, but I feel like uh, I hope it was interesting to all you guys. Um, and I guess that's a good time for me to thank all of you anyway. Uh, again, not sure when you're listening to this, but generally speaking, uh, we're certainly wrapping up our first um, you know, calendar year. Um, not our first actual year of being uh, a podcast, but uh, although we're getting there, but 2021, uh, I think March 7th is when we launched in 2021. So uh, the end of our first calendar year, uh, I just got to thank everyone for tuning in. I really appreciate that you guys have been such fervent fans of the show. I really appreciate that you've stuck with us. Um, I, you know, for myself, obviously, I, I'm starting a nonprofit during this time. Um, so my focus has always been split. When Charlie's come on, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I lassoed Charlie into this. And, um, you know, he certainly has a lot of other irons in the fire. So we're all doing this on, on somewhat split focus. Um, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we only care about it a little bit. Uh, we, we love to doing the show. It's been fun for us. I can't wait for all the guests, all the topics that we're going to have covered in the dangerously near future. We're already lining up uh, everybody, and um, we've got a bunch of topics uh, are, that I can't wait to get into. I think it's going to be really interesting stuff. Uh, feel free to reach out to us. You know, um, We'd love your feedback. Uh, those of you that have left reviews on iTunes, obviously, it's deeply appreciated along with your five-star reviews. But um, all your feedback is really valuable to us as well. It's great to hear um, who you want to see on the show, topics you you know want to hear talked about. That's always very, very valuable. But um, you know, podcast is only as effective as uh, the people that listen to it. And um, I feel like we have been. It's been gratifying that people have started to reach out to us uh, to be on the show. And um, I think that shows you know we're making a little bit of an impact, and uh, I'm grateful for it. So thanks, guys. Thanks for making this all worthwhile. Um, the show notes. As always, will be available at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. And uh, they'll also be available at the article that I think I will write at the Havoc Journal. I didn't write articles for the movie episodes, although maybe I'll do that too. Anyway, there should be an article at Havoc Journal uh, that will accompany this episode. So you can check out the show notes there, or you can just scroll up or down wherever you're listening to this podcast and you will see the show notes as well, as, as well as also any alibis, uh, anything I misstated, misremembered, misspoke. Um, anything that gets me in a cold sweat at two in the morning, I will write it up and put it as an alibi. It's been a while since I've had a proper alibi. I don't know if that means I'm getting better or if I just stopped caring. Um, either way, uh, <laughs> either way, um, if there is something that I can remember that really stood out to me, uh, it will be there in the show alibis. As I said before, you know, this year was a big year, uh, personally for me, um, you know, got out of the military, started the podcast, started a nonprofit, but I would be remiss if I didn't also plug the podcast for my nonprofit, Savage Wonder. It is a podcast about warriors and artists. It's produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater 
which is my nonprofit. Uh, Veterans Repertory Theater is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. But if you want to hear me conduct one-on-one, long-form interviews with veterans of the military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, or DOD contractors, or their immediate family members who are artists, please consider adding the Savage Wonder Podcast to your queue. I think it's a really good show. I think it's a fun show. For those of you that really like the spotlight episodes we do uh, for the Weekly Havoc, where I just go one-on-one with a guest, it's a lot like that, except the only distinction is the guests are also artists in addition to whatever their veteran status is. So it's a really interesting mix. Um, So hopefully uh, you guys will tune in and get a kick out of that, kind of expand um, the palette of shows that you may be listening to. And then, of course, uh, I know I happen to know because I've looked at the schedule already that we have a bunch of really cool spotlight episodes coming up that we're going to be recording. Uh, so that we'll have a lot of long form stuff on this show as well, too, coming up in the next year. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. This is the last episode of mine that he's going to have to uh, produce for 2021. So I'm sure he's grateful, but I always appreciate his help. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks to all of you for listening and supporting us this year. Deeply, deeply appreciate it. And I don't know what to say, guys. We'll keep trying to make order out of chaos for all of 2022 as well. And we'll see you then for the Weekly Havoc.